to Edge of the Rabbit Hole. I'm author and ghost historian Mike Ricksecker. With me, as always, my co-hostess, Vanessa Hogel. We have a fantastic show coming up for you tonight. Freddie Silva is back with us. He was on our show last year to talk about his book, The Divine Blueprint, if I could speak tonight. (laughs) This evening, we have him back on to talk about the missing lands, lost civilizations, uh, the world, uh, the antediluvian world before the flood. And he's an author, researcher. He's been on several shows. Freddie, it's fantastic to have you back. Nice to be back, Mike. I love the photograph you have of me underwater, surrounded by a black line. Looks like a virus. I should (laughs) say Uh, I should we'll tell everybody, it, we're getting a bit punchy uh, this evening. Just a little bit. Just <laughs> a little bit. It was a premonition. That's <laughs> what it was. <laughs> oh, sorry. Uh, I'm all right. We're, we're talking, yeah, well, we're talking a bit about viruses before the show starts. <laughs> it's kind of where our minds are at. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, Freddie, I had, the, I had the pleasure of diving into this, into your work here with the Missing Lands, and it is it is truly fascinating, the work that you've put into this to dig up this information about the world as it used to be, and it seems like it was vastly, vastly different. Can you give us, or the viewers, really, kind of a, a brief breakdown of what the book is about, and then we'll get into some of the different uh, topics here. It's a, It was a challenging book because you're trying to write about a period of time of which little is known about. I mean, we don't have much archaeological evidence. It's all buried under uh, a mountain of silt. Uh, sh- uh, the continents have sh- changed shape since this event happened 11,000 years ago. But all we have to go by is the names of places, the um, mythology of people, the legends, the traditions. And uh, I, the more I travel around the world, the more I like listening to people who live in remote areas and find out what they have to say about their traditions and not have to listen to some academic sitting in Europe somewhere in the middle of a, a very stuffy library, which is usually what I do. Um, so it was good to hear it from them. And I kept making, taking notes over the decade. And things began to coalesce in a way I hadn't really expected them. Uh, we take things for granted because, uh, that they mean what they say, and we don't investigate the origins of words, for example. And the more I began to look into the origins of what things actually mean in the local languages, it became very apparent that there was a parallel civilization running alongside human beings. Uh, we've heard this again and again. That's not a surprise. What I was not prepared for is the fact that all of these gods that they talk about, they're all interrelated. Uh, we used to think like Viracocha was someone in South America, and then we had Quetzalcoatl in Central America, and then we had the Anunnaki somewhere in the Middle East, but we had no idea that they were all part of the same group. And that's what was exciting, to find out you know, where this, how these people all connected, uh, what were they originally called, how they got around, and also, from my point of view, which is why the name of the book came into being, where did they live? Because it seems from every culture that I spoke to, they kept saying, well, these people kind of lived by themselves. They, they formed a separate society. It's as though they were, you know, they didn't really want to intermingle uh, with humans because humans were hunter-gatherers and they were different. They knew stuff that we don't today. They had complete control of the laws of nature. And I was thinking about the time when anthropologists went to places like New Guinea in about 20 years ago. They went for a hike, they went to the mountains, and by accident, they stumbled upon a completely unknown culture. 
They're all running around naked. There's no hierarchy. And it completely transformed the culture because these people coming out of the, uh, the woods, literally, were had wristwatches and had phones and had cameras. And to them, they were an advanced civilization. Uh, we didn't say the same thing about, you know, spaceship landed outside my house. Actually, there is one landing. Never mind. <laughs> um, if, 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 to, tomorrow. And uh, it would inadvertently alter the, uh, the development of our culture. So I wanted to find out, you know, where do they live? And, uh, you know, the, the, the remote places that uh, they appeared around the planet and how did they keep separate from uh, humans until they were forced to hang out with us because of a big global flood. So, yeah, it took a, b a bit of digging, but uh, it was worth it. Wow. I mean, that, that seems so ridiculous for me to say, but I, I've never looked at it quite that way. And I'm fascinated by that. Um, when, when you say, you know, in New Guinea, people coming out of the, you know, out of the, the forest and th the people in the tribe see something that there's no way they could have ever imagined on their own Absolutely. or dreamed on their own. You, you wouldn't think that what would seem like such a small mishap for lack of a better way of putting it, stumbling upon somebody, that it would change things so dramatically. Um, what was what was the one factor? Because I haven't had a chance to read the book yet, and I do apologize. I'm sorry, we can't be friends. I know, right? <laughs> and we were getting along so well because um, <laughs> we were like this, okay? Um, what was the one thread that you found um, that seemed to tie everything together? Was it a line of thought, an ability, um, a habit, a way that they did things. What is that one thread that seemed to tie all these different groups together? Oh, there was lots of them. Uh, you start off with the obvious, which is you look at building structures in the Andes, uh, 12,000 feet, and you go, well, that's unusual. Uh, how did hunter-gatherers put that together? Uh, you go to Tiwanaku or Saksaiwaman, or sexy woman, as the locals call it. And uh, you go, uh, nope, that wasn't hunter-gatherers. But then when you go take a walk in Giza and you look at the casing stones at the bottom of the uh, small pyramid, which so few people bother to go to, that's the most beautiful thing. You look at the construction, you go, wait a minute, that's the same style as they had back in Peru. Now, how do those cultures come together? And then you were in Easter Island, you go, wait a minute, that's the same construction method and you go to Taiwan. And slowly you begin to realize, okay, there's a common thread here. What links these things together as well? Well, you start looking at the mythologies and they all overlap. And they all talk about, with that exception, that after a global flood, there were survivors. I mean, humans uh, took it on the chin and so did the gods, but the few that were lucky enough to be at sea when these meteorites hit the earth and mostly landed on water, which is what created mm -hmm. all the big splashing and all mm -hmm. the big tsunami. Uh, the ones <laughs> lucky enough to be caught in the ocean were a uh, said, okay, um, what should we do? We, we can't go back to where we came from because it's sunk. The island's gone. It's the sea level's risen so much and everything's gone. Well, we're going to have to move inland and uh, hang out with humans and teach them civilization because they were barbarians to begin with. Now they're even worse. And every culture has the same story. And they say that out of the blue, there were seven craftspeople one of them was a woman who was the wisdom keeper and she was married and she was the sister and the wife of, although I think it's a metaphor, she was the sister and the wife of the eighth guy who was a charismatic leader of them all. So this would have been Vida in South America. 
Quetzalcoatlcan and Itzamna, who we never hear about in Central America, uh, and, and also the followers of Horus in Egypt. And they mm -hmm. all appear with the same groups of seven people led one by one charismatic leader. So now you've got a series of connections. You've got a visual connection in terms of the construction method. You've got a, a point of contact between all the myths and the traditions. And if you accept the ordinary, let's say the ordinary uh, narrative of academia, that we were too stupid to get around the earth. We lived in the little bubbles by ourselves. Well, if that's true, how did the stories overlap? And in most cases, they're identical to each other. So either they inherited the story or people were getting around much more than we gave them credit for. And there was one story in uh, New Zealand from the uh, a tribe no one's ever heard of called the Waitaha, who I adore. And they said, you know, people were getting around the uh, Pacific and the Indian oceans like you and I go shopping for groceries at the supermarket. They had very good catamarans and you still see a small version of them today in Samoa. They're still being built in Samoa. And they said, yeah, the, this is a gift from the gods. It worked back then. It works now. And you get from A to B very quickly. So this is the, the point, the threads that I was piecing together that I found so compelling as proof that there was a parallel civilization. Freddie, wow. I, I'm really interested. What What is it that mainstream science fails to latch on to? Because you've mentioned it a few times here. I mean, I think we pretty much, most people know that the flood story is worldwide. There's many, many, many cultures that talk of a flood story. These cultures also talk of coming from some land that is now underwater. You mentioned the building styles. A, a lot of the languages have similarities to it. Um, I, I think one of the, the last things that I read in here was about the Zuni having similar words to the Japanese. You know, it's... Yeah. What does mainstream science fail to to latch onto here that they're stuck in, you know, this one frame of mind that really just doesn't add up to the type of research that guys like you have done? I think it's a lack of humility. <laughs> uh, we had this argument all the time. I know John Anthony West, the late John mm -hmm. Anthony West, had the same issue as well. Uh, after they came up with a uh, laughing euphemism for all of us. Um, we're all apparently pseudo-scientists, and I retorted that, okay, well, you're quackademics then. Right. <laughs> uh, they can't handle the fact that all of their cherished theories are being undermined by emerging evidence. That's all we're doing. We didn't go out one morning and say, I think I'm going to challenge everybody in Oxford, uh, because I'm not up to that uh, you know, intellectual level. I wouldn't even you know, pretend that I am. But the point is, I didn't just wake up and say, I'm gonna basically challenge these people's opinions. I just looked at things I looked at the evidence and said, that doesn't match with what I've been told. And now the whole point of science is to follow the evidence and develop the theory based on the emerging evidence. So your theory has to evolve. So in my case, if someone wakes up tomorrow and says, uh, Freddie, I just found something that's being uncovered somewhere in the Middle East, it completely undermines your theory of A, B, and C. And I'll go, thank you. Now we can move that theory forward because we know more now. The theory was good up until this point. Now, academia can't do that because of several things. One, their work is essentially the blueprint for all teaching around the world. So first of all, you have to change all the books. Two, you have to admit that you were wrong, but they weren't really wrong. They just got it right up to the point where they stopped asking questions and they stopped dismissing the evidence. So they're actually lying now. Uh, they're hypocrites. <laughs> And, that's, and I don't feel uh, any sorry for people like that. What I feel sorry for them for is that they can't move forward and, uh, and accept that there is evidence that undermines the uh, theory and you have to expand the theory to take in the new evidence. That's real science. But if you take them off camera, take them for a little drink down, down the uh, corner shop and say, 
but what do you actually think? And they said, well, don't quote me on this, but I think that the work that the independent researchers are doing is far outstripping all of us because we're in our little boxes. We can't, we won't be published if we say the things that you're saying. And then at that point, your heart goes out to them. They are mm -hmm. hamstrung by that and they lose their tenure at college. They lose their funding and their life is over. So I can see where the fear comes in. But at some point, you've got to develop a backbone and say, I didn't get into this job to lie. Right. Uh, you have to write. I mean, I give up my career and everything I own to follow a gut feeling and luckily end up as a best-selling book, which is quite wonderful. But I had no idea where I was going. So sometimes you just have to do it. You have to go there and follow that gut feeling and do what you came here to do. Yeah, I mean, my, so my mind kind of goes to... You know, along that line, I understand they would lose funding and whatnot at the at the institutions. But you know, my frame of mind goes to you know, to me, it's exciting to discover something new and, and uncover something that had been lost to time. And you can always write another book and sell more books. Exactly. Yeah. The problem is we're writing the books and we're going on television and they're not. Right. <laughs> there's a, there's an, there is an element of jealousy to this. I mean, people. There's one particularly unpleasant person who I won't mention who's going around Amazon giving people like me one-star reviews. Wow. And, of course, the comments that come behind it are fantastic. People have obviously latched onto the fact that it's just about debunking, causing people, you know, giving them reason to uh, disbelieve what I've written. And pe what people like Graham Hancock have written as well. Yeah. The same guys going after him and Andrew Collins. We're all in the same cage, which is yep. kind of nice. You know, it makes us feel good. Yeah, but it's a brotherhood. Part, discrediting putting doubt into something which means it puts 50 percent of the people off mm -hmm. and your sales go down but it's inevitable that we're going to go there because we're getting the exposure and uh you know i'm not saying i'm right i'm just saying that we're putting the information out and let people make up their own minds they can't handle that so there's this huge buffeting system that's uh, going on so it, it comes with the territory you just ignore them it's like go away <laughs> <laughs> yeah but that's that has to be exceptionally frustrating and i mean granted I, I i do appreciate how you just explained that other situation because what i would have very close of my close-mindedly thought is hubris from from the college professors not wanting to admit anything yeah. and then you say you take them back behind you know go outside have a cigarette and chat about it and find out that it's a different story i i appreciate you putting it that way because that gives me more insight and i'm going to be less judgmental on why they don't change the way that yeah. they do things. So thank it, you for it's that. A game. It's a game. It's pride as well. It's all those mm -hmm. those human things that we all suffer from. Which is, and that's all understandable, but I'm trying to understand how anybody who is in the same field that you are, that is interested in getting appropriate information out there to make people think, to, 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 to do what you're supposed to do, educate, you know, teach people, have them open their eyes and their minds and think why they would try so hard to go against it. I mean, yeah, but I mean, I didn't sort of do I didn't get involved in all of this, uh, having given up a very lucrative career doing something else uh, to uh, appease them. I did it because of sheer interest and love for what I do and to share it with people. And I figured the book will attract the right people in its right time. And it does. I mean, I've written for various audiences. I've got six books now at the 12 documentaries i think i'm on now and they're appealing to all kinds of people now would rather just tell people who have an open mind if they don't that's not my problem uh, you know i'd rather just live a you know a, a life where i'm just paying the paychecks you know paying all the bills off and uh and, and still doing it for 10 years <coughs> excuse me from now so i'm not really here to convince the academics one way or the other um 
if they do, that's great. If not, it's I'm not losing sleep over it. Yeah, I'm not going to understand that. Um, the uh, the very fuddled when I actually credit them in the back of the book when they no. <laughs> that's, really worth quoting. That's, that's yeah. brilliant. That's brilliant. I'm going to yeah, steal I mean, that from you. <laughs> yeah, you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. There, people have said some archaeologists have said incredible things, uh, and you quote that and you use that as your point of reference. But there's things which, uh, like the, the case with the pyramids in Egypt being uh, burial chambers, where's the evidence? There's not one shred of evidence. Right. And, uh, there's a fantastic one. It's uh, my favorite building of all. It's the Bent Pyramid. There's a reason why it's bent. It's very deliberate. Mm -hmm. It involves some interesting mathematics, including tangents and cosines, uh, which I'm not going to get to right now. But um, there's only one piece of evidence to prove that Snetheru, the pharaoh, mm -hmm. was associated with those buildings. It was a piece of graffiti that was written a thousand years after the event. And it says, Snetheru owns these buildings. That's like saying the Queen of England owns all the churches in England. Yeah, she does, because she's the monarch at the time. Right. The next monarch. Mm -hmm. Prince Charles would own it after her. Uh, doesn't mean the Snaffer built it. He just owned it. He was the guy that inherited all this stuff, and that's all we know. But somehow it become three different pyramids become Snaffer's uh, <laughs> mortuary chamber. How can one person with one body have three buildings in which to get buried? Did they chop up his body into three? Uh, these things don't add up, and that's the little things that I latch onto to figure out, well, what does make sense, and then follow the story. From there. Yeah, and well, if you're talking about you know something that's been placed there, some graffiti a thousand mm -hmm. years later. I mean, you look at today's society; anybody can come along with a spray can and and tag a building and say it's theirs. <laughs> I mean, Egypt, there were masters of doing this because if yeah. you, have, if you have, I don't know if you've been to Egypt, but if you look at some of the pillars, there are some beautiful hieroglyphs. Mm -hmm. The earliest hieroglyphs are the most beautiful and elegant, and they're very softly touched. Sometimes they're raised. The next person that came along said, well, I don't like that story. The pillar's already here. How about I get a stonemason to chisel away mm -hmm. the hieroglyphs, and then we'll put our stuff. And by the time you get to about 1100 BC, the hieroglyphs are, are that deep into the pillar to the point where the pillar's falling apart because everybody's chopped away the story, and they've rewritten the story in the pillar. Uh, so, yeah, the deeper the, the hieroglyph, you know that someone's been lying and changing the story. It's a, it's wow. like a with the local historians and the guides. Well, and looking at this from a, from a viewpoint of somebody that's involved in the paranormal and stuff like that, and and in regards to what you said about the origin of words, I yeah. want to I want to go back to that real quick because I am always interested in that. When you uh, uh, Snefaru, am I saying that correctly? Yes. Okay. When you say that there's graffiti from that long ago that says he owns this building, what was the origin of that? Because the meaning behind him owning something that long ago would be different than the meaning behind him owning something today. Exactly. You have to put it into perspective of the people that were around at the time. You can't see it from our perspective. Exactly. Uh, so many words have changed. I mean, look at the word gay, for example. In the 20s, gay meant something very lively. If you're a gay person, that was a huge compliment. You were happy. It's, it's almost been a derogatory term. Um, a whore was actually a promiscuous man in a court. Uh, it was a courtesan. It wasn't a woman at all. Mm. Uh, and then he got applied to a midwife when the men wanted to take over the, the uh, the midwife business. So 
words change over time. So you've got to go back to the origin as far as you can and look at what they meant back then. And of course, the classic error is the Virgin Mary. Well, mm-hmm. you thank your, you. Yeah, if you know your Latin from your ancient Latin, you know that the Virgin <laughs> changed over the course of 500 years. So if you go back to the time of Jesus, um, Virgin or Virgo means a young woman of maritable age. That means she's a virgin. She's just a young woman who's ready to be married. Now that changed the whole story of the Bible totally. And that's mm-hmm. when we get into these problems. Uh, tr- uh, words can be very mischievous. So. The further back you can go, uh, the uh, the best foundation that you stand upon. And that's why it takes me so damn long to write a book. I've got to go back and look at the origins of these things. I would reach through this computer and give you a gold star <laughs> if I could right now, simply because you just cleared up. I have told that to so many people to help them better understand a particular situation. And they don't believe me. Yeah, I mean, just buy them a copy of the Oxford English Book of uh, Etymology, which is a great Christmas present. Uh, (laughs) Really, mate, what am I talking about? Um, Yeah, and if you go back to one of the original versions, which is from like 1830, which is the one I tend to use, look up heretic, for example. It's a Mm -hmm. great word, heretic. Oh, yes, burn the heretics. Now, why would you burn someone? And this is the original meaning of heretic, someone in possession of the facts who's able to choose. Mm-hmm. Right. So in other words, someone who has facts at his availability or her availability, that was a bad thing back in the 11th century because the church mm-hmm. didn't want you to know anything about linking them back to the, the times of Egypt or the Phoenicians that they borrowed from everybody. They borrowed all their stories from everybody and then killed everybody to cover the tracks. So if you're a heretic, that was a bad thing before the, For the church. <laughs> Exactly. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to sit here and smile and be so unbelievably happy right now. You go, Mike. <laughs> I think Freddie's getting into. I think Freddie's getting into some of his work on the Templars here. <laughs> yes, I'm. I'm just. I'm. I'm so tickled. I'm just so happy right now. So y'all go ahead, talk amongst yourselves. I'm going to wipe away my little happy tears because somebody finally confirmed everything I've told people. Uh, just send me a, a bottle of 16-year-old Lagavulin into my address. And I'll ah, be, uh, there you go. <laughs> I will do my best. A drink of serious researchers. There you go. Fantastic. So People even die drinking 16-year-old Lagavulin. This is sad but true. Really? <laughs> wow. <laughs> what a way to go, though, right? Friend, yeah. Who's one of the best dowsers in the world. Fantastic guy. He taught me how to douse. Lovely uh, gentleman. And uh, I was in New Zealand, and I was about to go on stage, and a friend of mine's a local historian, said, Freddie, good to see you, mate. Um, I've got good news and bad news. And I said, well, I'm about to go on stage. Give me the bad news first. He says, well, uh, our good friend just uh, passed away. What? Oh, no, don't tell me this. I'm about to go on stage. And I'm kind of you know, uh, becoming a very girly man. And he says, but calm yourself, my friend. He says, he died drinking our favorite scotch. He died drinking like a <laughs> lucky bastard. Oh my gosh. If you're going to go, go that way. Absolutely. Yeah. One, one of those. Yeah. That's one of the ways. That's not bad. That's not bad. No. <laughs> anyway. Top three. Go ahead. Yeah. So, you know, getting, getting back into the book, um, you you do cover I mean basically the entire world I mean you're 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 skipping around from you know the the South Pacific to Egypt to you know Peru America all over the place which is fantastic because you're getting the glimpses of how this story is really a global story um, and there's several things I found fascinating in here but one of them you you do cover briefly in here I, I thought was interesting was 
the idea that there may be some giants still around today or, or giant humanoid beings. So can you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, I didn't really want to go there, but eventually the uh, story was getting so juicy that I figured it's actually going to fit in here because we talk about giant people all the time. We hear mm -hmm. about this, about the, uh, the Anunnaki, the Nephilim and so forth. But the, you have to draw a distinction. Uh, the gods weren't giants. They were very tall. They were about eight and a half to ten feet tall. And it's, there's actually a measurement in the wall of the Temple of Edfu in Egypt. Uh, it's five cubits. So depending on which cubit you're using, between eight and a half to ten feet tall. Mm -hmm. And we've got the uh, bones to back it up anywhere between Egypt all the way to Scotland, all the way to the Ohio Valley. They're everywhere. Yeah. Uh, Catalina Island had a whole community of them uh, off the coast of, of uh, is it LA? Yes, uh, off the coast of California. So the next iteration, uh, you have to go back to the time when the group of people called the Watchers, who were these craftspeople, who were essentially the helpers of humanity. And I hope you will back me up on this because they'll still say, yeah, they're the ones that helped us get here. Without them, we'd be dead. We would be nobody right now. We'd be fertilizing daffodils. So the, the story that the Watchers were bad people, uh, it's, uh, it's partly true because there was a small group who defied orders not to marry and interbreed with human women because there are two genetic models here. And also the fact when you have an eight and a half foot tall, tall guy and a five foot tall woman, what happens is they end up giving birth to infants and the Wichita of Oklahoma still have a story of when the gods and the children of the gods came over to intermarry their wives, uh, sorry, their women became their wives, they died in childbirth. So mm -hmm. it didn't work for a long period of time. Right. So we always get to hear the bad story about this. Um, it turns out that, actually, I forgot the question now. <laughs> <laughs> Um, about the about the possibility of there still being some giants right. today, yeah. So um, it's been a long day. It's okay. Um, so it was the by the time they got their DNA sorted out, they were breeding successfully, and the the surviving story comes from Middle East. It talks about the Nephilim, which means the children of Orion. Now the gods were all associated with the constellation of Orion all around the world. Another connection. And it was these people that turned out to be the giants. They grew to enormous lengths. And when I was in New Zealand researching the story, there were some historians there that have been following up the story about giants in New Zealand because there's a hill uh, not far from Raglan in the North Island where the Maori, even in the 19th century, were still talking about giants living there. And they called it the Mountain of the Red-Haired Giant People. That's actually what the hill means in Maori. So they couldn't have made this up. And there was a story about a, a young girl who was, um, she didn't go to school that day because of uh, bad weather or something. She went for a walk and uh, near the beach and she found a body washed up. It was 14 feet tall. And there's a record of this because it was, uh, the mother called up the council. The council brought a, a fat bread truck, puts the body with the, uh, you know, all the membranes still attached to the body. Mm -hmm. So it hadn't decomposed that much uh, on the back of the truck, took it away to a museum somewhere and you never heard about it again. There was the official paperwork got stamped, classified, and it took a colleague of mine to sue the New Zealand government to argue the fact that this is not a national national security. You need to release the paperwork and he won. So it's now a matter of public record. Now, that's one place. Now, further up the road, uh, uh, graphically speaking, in the Solomon Islands, uh, in the Second World War, 
the U.S. Air Force uh, people and also the Japanese soldiers used to sleep with a revolver under their pillow, not because they're going to afraid of being you know invaded by each other's armies, but because they're afraid of being attacked by fourteen foot tall red haired giants that were still walking around the forest. So when this comes from service people, you know they're not making it up. They are no nonsense people. They go there to fight and protect themselves. They're not interested in mumbo jumbo. And uh, one day there's a story that I remember well that was retold to me. They said that there was, I think it was a a couple of U.S. Air Force uh, members. They were driving the Jeep up the hill. Uh, The Solomons are impenetrable, by the way. Uh, Mm -hmm. Very mountainous, deeply forested, uh, hard to get into the interior. And they said that uh, in a rainstorm, the Jeep went off the side of the road into a ravine. Luckily, no one got uh, hurt, but they had to go back down to the bottom of the hill to get a pickup truck to bring and hoist the Jeep back on the road. Well, a day later, they finally got up there. The Jeep was back on the road, upright and ready to go downhill. So when the villagers heard about the story, they said, oh, yeah, that's the giants. They're very helpful. They like to be left alone. They don't cause us any trouble. And sometimes we leave food out for them and we watch them, you know, moving through the uh, the trees and we just leave them alone. They're part of a once very glorious culture. They lost the hope to live because they can't breed with humans. They live by themselves in the mountains. They go through the tunnels, which are luminescent because there's a type of moss or fungus that grows on the side of the walls that makes you see in the dark. And I thought, wow, what a great story. How, why would you make this up? I wonder. Right, exactly. The weirdest part is that the island from where this story comes from is called Isa Tabu, which means the sacred abode of Isis. Now, what is that doing in the Solomon Islands? In yeah, the- that's Egyptian, right. Wow. <laughs> exactly. Wow. Um, I have a question. So since they can't interbreed with, with humans, the 14 foot tall ones, the eight and a half to 10 feet, maybe, but the 14 foot tall ones cannot. Are they breeding with each other so that they could still be around for that long? It's uh, you're talking 6,000 year time span now. Uh, the story picks up with the Cherokee when they moved across America and they ended up in West Virginia, which I've always said is the most mysterious and mystical place of the whole of North America. And people laugh at me when I say this. It's like when I say Detroit's one of the most beautiful cities I've ever been in, and people just laugh at me. They think I'm a stupid tourist. Uh, no. It's like Manhattan <laughs> without people, it's a beautiful city. And uh, I don't like it there. Uh, So in West Virginia, when the Cherokee moved there, God knows how many thousands of years ago, they say that they came across a small group of very tall people. They didn't mention how tall they were. They said they were giants and they were redheaded. And uh, they were the ones who were the original mound builders. And they picked up their stories because they said they'd lost hope. They had to interbreed with each other. Their DNA was all messed up. And they were just, you know, fighting and drinking and like you do when you lose hope, you become suicidal. Uh, it's understandable. You know, even we do that today. Uh, and um, they said that they had the most wonderful uh, cosmology and uh, they learned everything from them. They incorporated it into their cosmology so that their genius would never be forgotten. These people that originated from an island in the middle of the Atlantic that sank in a global catastrophe a long, long time ago. And they call them the Alawani. And they even named a river and dedicated it to them. And we call it today the Allegheny, which runs through Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. Another very interesting situation. Wow. So, yeah, so the story picks up from there. But uh, in, the, in Egypt, the story's a little bit different. Uh, they wrote about it in the building text, which uh, there was a woman, actually, she passed away recently. Um, Eve Raymond, she deciphered the building texts. It's an incredibly scholarly book. It's like five to $600 if you can get hold of a copy. 
Uh, I have one because I read that. I'm devouring that book like crazy. It's, it's an incredible piece of work. So she took the uh, book from the walls of, uh, of Edfu Temple in Egypt. She's deciphered the whole thing, but she's very matter-of-fact about it, very dry and academic. Now, I'm bringing to it the, the power of metaphor and the mythology, and I'm beginning to understand what the story says. And, they, and they're telling you that after the flood, uh, well, actually, I'll back up a little bit uh, to tie it in with the book. Before the flood, which is the start of the, the older Dryas, or the younger Dryas, I should say, in 10,800 BC, when the Earth was hit by a blast of meteorites, we have the evidence to prove this now, um, the gods realized that something else was on the horizon and it was coming for them within a thousand years. So they decided to go out into the hinterlands, they said, and start looking for new places where they could restart their civilization and to build temples that looked like the ones where they came from. And that's where the Egyptian gods arrive in Egypt around 10,600 BC. And incredibly, there is an agricultural anomaly along the Nile in 10,500 BC, where humans discovered agriculture and animal domestication, just like that. So there is a coincidence here with an advanced culture influencing a bunch of hunter-gatherers. And then the flood comes along in 9,700 BC, and the groups of gods that survive are called the Aku Shemsuhor, which means shining ones, followers of Horus. Uh, same uh, epitaph that you gave to the Anunnaki, by the way. They were also called the Shining Ones, by the way. So there's an overlap. Mm -hmm. And uh, they arrived in the, along the Nile. They built their mounds. And um, they initially bred with, with each other for the obvious reasons. But after a while, they kept trying to interbreed with humans. and Because they're saying there was a, a race of half-human, half-divine people that took over the throne from time to time between, uh, let's say, 8,500 BC to about 3,000 BC. And then there's an incredible statement in the building texts. They say in 3,100 BC, the first pharaoh of a purely human bloodline takes the throne of Egypt. And that story also picks up in the Maya people at exactly the same date in the Yucatan. Wow. So they found a way around it. And there was an archaeologist, and I forget his name right now. I, begin, I think his first name is Walter. And I was reading his extracts from the 20s, and he said that he came across graves that didn't add up. They were neither massive gods, nor were they humans. They were in between. So he actually found the graves of these people that interbred successfully with the followers of Horus, and they did quite well. And the redeeming feature to them was the fact they were much taller than ordinary Egyptians, uh, more normal heights, like between you know seven feet, six and a half feet tall. Uh, so not really unusual, but still for Egyptians, very, very tall. But they had red hair, and they had the elongated skull. And we know all that that story that appears throughout mm -hmm. Egypt. And so mm -hmm. that bloodline eventually develops into the bloodline of Amenhotep III in 1300 BC, who gives birth to Akhenaten, who mm -hmm. also had the elongated skull, and of course Tutankhamun and the daughters. Uh, so, and they eventually just disappeared. They, they went to the bloodline. Not um, to put it a long story. They married with the princes of Scythia, who were the uh, progeny of the Anunnaki. Now we're talking 8,000 years after the event. And from there, they went over to Scandinavia. That's why you get the white-skinned, red-haired, uh, green-eyed people in Scandinavia. To Orkney, down the Isles of uh, Scotland, and into Ireland, they became known as the Tuar de Danan. Or the two the Danu, as they were mm -hmm. called in Lithia. So the bloodline still remained up until about ooh, a thousand BC, uh, uh, certainly. 
Wow. One last question for me that I'm going to shut up because I know Mike's got some. I have to go You're back fine. again to the to the word origin, the shining wood. And you have different cultures calling them the same thing, the shining ones. Yeah. Is there um, – we went back to the to the ones where they, you were talking about the, the fungus that bioluminate that they were able to go through and, and, it, and it, you know, lit the dark. When they were called the shining ones, was that because they had something on their skin or their skin was bioluminescent? What would have been the origin behind that particular word in two separate cultures? Oh, it's very very simple. It's actually in the original version of the Book of Enoch. Uh, That was not his real name, by the way. His real name in Mesopotamia was Emed Ur Anu. He was one of the Anunnaki. He was a learned scholar. Uh, the whole story gets changed in the Bible. Uh, so, you know, go back. Big surprise. <laughs> no, it's actually very simple. Uh, because if you read the story verbatim, uh, it says that when uh, Emet Ur-Anu, I'll call him by his real name, goes up to the seventh haven, not heaven, seventh haven. So there was seven places where they lived. Um, the, uh, the Lord Anu says to him, well, give him some clothes that he can feel at home so he can look like us. And also anoint him with the oil so also he looks okay. like us. It was because the skin was shiny because of some oil that they smeared on themselves because they were very light-skinned. It was almost like a sunblock. They had a problem with the sun here. Uh, but okay. it was also a metaphor because the ancients always talk in metaphors. And, they, and it was to do with the fact that they were much more enlightened than your average hunter-gatherer. It's that simple. And it's the same okay. story all the way through the Pacific as well in South America. In as fact, appears to be the number seven. And, it's been, and the number seven as well. And in South America, Vida Kosha, he wasn't the only one. He had his seven helpers, and they were called the Hai Hai Wapanti. Mm-hmm. I don't know how I remember this stuff. And I, asked I don't my, either. My guide, who's an Aymara, <laughs> who's a very, I mean, the Aymara are really unusual people, very ancient. And I said, What does that mean in Aymara? And he says, That means the shining people. So as Vida Kosha and the shining people were also in South America. So that's, they were part of the same group of people. Wow. Oh, this, I'm just, <laughs> I, love, I love what I do. It's, yeah, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. I don't it really know is. how this stuff finds me. I just put a thought out. I go, that's interesting. And before you know it, someone sends me an email that I've never heard about uh, or a book pops out of the shelf. Something just happens or I get invited to go and speak somewhere and someone has the answer that I need. So I kind of just go at it and I don't even bring my own ego into it because I just get in the way. I just let the information go where it takes me and I just make the connections, which is what I used to do in my old job anyway, just find connections and commonalities and connect the dots. Uh, I, I thought anybody could do this, but apparently they can't. Um, so, well, And you're finding these connections all over the world over all time, which is absolutely fascinating. Yeah, it's, uh, it's what gets me to accrue all these air miles and uh, spend 64. I mean, I was on 64 planes last year, Mike. It was ridiculous. Uh, but it, wow. is, it is fascinating to hear the story from other points of view. And the, the, the one that really sort of became the linchpin of the book was the one in New Zealand where, you know, the official story is the Maori with the indigenous culture of New Zealand. Well, there's a bit of a problem with that in that if you read the extracts of the Maori people, and all respected them, by the way, um, they said that when they arrived in New Zealand about 800 years ago, they were met by people on the shore. Well, if you're being met by people on the shore, you can't be the indigenous people. There's right. people already there. And there's 13 tribes in New Zealand that play claim to have been there before the Maori. And they're saying, we're not doing it to get money or special privilege. We're just saying it's a matter of record so we can given the due credit we're not trying to be better than you we're you know we're all one people 
and the one that I loved was the one about the Waitaha. And I, they, there was an oral tradition that has been going on forever. It was published only 20 years ago. Someone gave me a copy and it blew my mind because it helped me put the pieces together. So the Waitaha were in, were in, in Easter Island. Uh, they were the indigenous people of Easter Island. When they called it the archipelago, so think about for a second, it was a series of islands, not one island as it is today. Right. The sea level was much lower. There was more there, yeah. And they used to be visited by the gods, used to come from South America, from Tiwanaku. They were the light there, they would give them knowledge, then they would go on to the birthplace of the gods. I didn't know what the hell they were talking about until I went to the birthplace of the gods, which is in the South Island of New Zealand. It's the most beautiful outdoor temple you'll ever see. It's a natural landscape temple. And it turns out, that uh, these people were going backwards and forwards across the Pacific doing a big triangulation with the Easter Islands. And they had monuments there, which are still in place. You can still see the faces of things that were carved by hand. So I wanted to find out when their story began. Uh, they talk about being in the flood when they were nearly overwhelmed by the massive waves in the middle of the Pacific. So they're already 11,000 years old, this oral tradition, right. which is nothing compared to the Aborigines, by the way. So their monuments, I found, were the two principal monuments were aligned to the principal constellations of Orion and the Southern Cross on the spring equinox of 10,400 BC. And anyone that knows Robert Beauval's work and the work of Adrian Gilbert will know that date also appears on the Giza Plateau. Mm -hmm. And also, I think I'm not the first person to find this out. I think there's two people. Uh, we found it independently. The same alignment appears at Gobekli Tepe with the rising of Orion. Now we have a bigger story going on here where all of these people are now connected with the gods of New Zealand as well, of which we knew nothing about. Yeah, and that's what really fascinates me is you do have all these cultures and peoples from all over the world that seem to have very similar stories like this, that we weren't the first people here, or they built their temples on already existing structures, and their stories are very similar like this. It's, it seems to be like there's one world history that's just been fragmented over time, and we talked about it earlier, just mainstream science will not pick up on this notion that, hey, we're, we're all connected here, but we really are. But you know what? Last week, New Scientist magazine admitted that, and I'm going to quote this, I try not to laugh, the pyramids of Giza are aligned to the cardinal points. Oh. <laughs> In fact, that's even if wrong, I... because they're not aligned to the cardinal points. There's 360 cardinal points. What they're aligned to is the uh, the four corners, the actual grid points of the Earth, north, south, east, west. <laughs> wow. Have they been to Google Earth and seen the pyramids from above and recognized that they are aligned to the four true uh, true positions of the of the compass? Right. Oh, dear. So, yeah. <laughs> I wish Jonathan Anthony West was still here. I'm sure he had something funny to say about that. Yeah. You know, he's probably rolling in his grave. So we miss him. We miss him. Yeah. So we do have some questions here from the chatters. I do want to get to some of these, and I have a couple other things oh, uh, for you. We do. Oh, we have uh, quite a few viewers out there. Of course. Uh, yeah. So let's see. We have from, well, we were talking a little bit about uh, the giants and the pyramids and all that. So Hinsdale girls wondering if the giants were part of making the pyramids. Oh, we don't know. Um, if it was the same people that we're talking about, then certainly the tall people were involved. The oldest tradition I can find about the Great Pyramids uh, in Egypt, and also the ones at Dashur, they were part of the same blueprint, by the way. 
um, is a very old fragment from an Arabic scholar, uh, and I believe he was around 500 BC. So he was basically regurgitating stories that he had been told from other people. Uh, one of the great things about the ancient past is oral tradition. You know, maintaining that tradition mm -hmm. from father to son, uh, from wisdom keeper to wisdom keeper. And it was extraordinary because he was saying that there was an old story about one of the original pharaohs of Egypt before the flood, where 300 years before the catastrophe struck, the pharaoh has a big nightmare. He sees rocks, burning rocks, hurling down towards the earth and a massive flood overwhelming the entire earth. Now, he was so panicked by this that he gets all of his astrologers in. Uh, there's one thing that connects all of these gods around the world again is the fact that they're all master astronomers i mean they really knew what was going up in the, in the sky and the chief astronomer was a guy called tehote uh, you know him by the greek name toph so tehote is given charge to find out if his dream was an indication of what was coming so he got together the astro the astronomers and they took the charts of the sky and they figured out actually uh, in about 300 years of our time, the Earth is going to be in the opportune part of the sky in November when a certain meteor shower, which, by the way, is still occurring every November to this very day, and we look up and go, oh, the torrids. Yeah, there they are. They're the ones that cause all the problems. We're going to be in a stream, and it's going to be full of big chunks. And I think we should prepare, because we've accumulated by now uh, about uh, 26,000 years of wisdom, and that's actually written down. 26,000 years of wisdom, and we shouldn't let this just disappear. So the pharaoh tells uh, Tehote, can you build me a, some kind of a storeroom that will be safe enough to house the stuff in, and also that we can find after the earth has been rearranged after the flood? And he went, absolutely, sir, I can do that. So he gets the other followers of Horus involved, and they're the ones that apparently built the pyramids to house all the information that they had. Because when you go there, you go, this is a bit big for a place to get buried. In fact, a little bit. Something. Yeah. You know, it's protecting something so well. It's waterproof and watertight. It's as though it was built for that reason. And it's very hollow, by the way. Uh, there's a lot of chambers that haven't been found yet. Mm -hmm. But I think that there's another chamber uh, in, the, uh, in, in that area, which I think is even more important than people forget about. Because, that, yes, you, you will see a pyramid after the flood. That's the one thing that will say, is, okay, there it is. Let's go and find out the information. Let's go and, and open it, and we'll bring the stuff out. But it's also open to, <clears throat> to looting, okay? Anything that's big will attract attention. Sure. And I figured perhaps they put some of it there, but they would have put something somewhere else uh, as a matter of precaution. Because, you know, if you have a lot of money in your bank account, you split your bank accounts in case your bank, uh, you know, falls out of uh, favor with the local government and it gets uh, all your assets are seized. So I figured there must be some other place. And then in the book, I did some research on the Serapeum, which is not too far. You can see the Pyramid of Giza from the Serapeum at uh, Saqqara. And there are these uh, there's an underground chamber, which is very quickly hacked out of the rock. And the uh, academics will say, oh, it's a series of tombs. Yeah, but the tombs, um, again, if you, look at, if you look at the actual way that it's structured, they're very horrible. They're, they were chiseled out in a hurry. If you've seen an Egyptian tomb, it's a masterpiece of mm. art, architecture and artwork. This would have been an insult to be buried in a place like this. And the sarcophagi, actually, the boxes that are in there were dragged all the way from Aswan, 500 miles away. They weigh, on average, 180 tons apiece. And they look like they were designed, as Christopher Dunn has pointed out, to be completely air and water tight. And I'm thinking, what a great place to hide stuff. 
right. <laughs> uh, when the flood hits the earth. The problem is how you're going to find it. Well, if you come back after the flood and you stand using the Great Pyramid as grid north and the Ben Pyramid as grid south pointing to the North Pole, you can get a double connection to the Serapeum and at a specific moment at midnight where specific stars are aligned, which are very important to the Egyptians. And the third point was exactly the alignment of the Serapeum to the sunrise at the winter solstice in 10,400 BC. So they were already preparing this place, this underground place to put stuff of great importance inside it so they can come back and find out where it was later. It's a hunch. I'm just, I just put it in the book because I think it's an interesting theory and it's going to evolve. But I think those are the people that were involved with the building of the Great Pyramid and the whole area around the, uh, the Giza Plateau. That's fantastic. Yeah, that's really amazing. I have another one from uh, Victoria Munday. She asks, uh, if history is written by the victors and you write something that's counter to accepted history, isn't it uh, that your point is often dismissed as invalid or counterculture? Oh, absolutely. Uh, we're called uh, pseudoscientists. It's the right. uh, term that they use when they've run out of arguments and personal, uh, um, well, let's, let's just say, um, insults. <laughs> uh, no, I'm not really bothered at all, no, because I'm not here to convince anybody of anything. Uh, it's not even my opinion. If I give you an opinion, I'll tell you. Uh, I give you facts, and now you can figure out what you want to do with the facts. You can make up your own mind. And I keep you know, getting fan mail all the time now for 20 years that, you know, the one thing I like reading about your books is you're not preaching at me. You're giving me the information, and I end up making up my own opinion. And that's what I enjoy about this work. I'm not convincing anybody of anything. If the academics want to take it on board, fantastic. Let's have a conversation. If not, I'm not going to lose sleep over it. Uh, we have Graham Hancock to take all the arrows. He's the one. <laughs> he does too. Straight at them. You know, good old Graham. Uh, and he does. He, and yeah. he does it elegantly as well. I mean, the amount of vitriol yeah. because his way. He's so well spoken. Yeah. Because, and he's well spoken. And he's got the most. Um, he's been. He's been out 20 years longer than I have. Mm. Uh, and we're friends. And he owes me a beer. And, um, <laughs> we live not far from each other in England as well, which is kind of funny. Hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, he's, he's a more visible face of all the alternative historians. So, of course, he's going to get the, uh, all the attention and all the vitriol as well. So, no, I'm not really bothered at all because eventually the truth will find itself out and the truth will find the right people and will reach a critical mass whereby this, the story will have to be changed anyway. I mean, look at the – I don't really accept what goes on in ancient aliens for a lot of reasons, mostly because it, most of it's absolute nonsense based on – ideas which have no basis in reality but it makes great entertainment and it gets you to ask questions that's what's right. great about it you get your thinking questions. yeah it's a it's a, a lot of speculation but you know let's speculate and let's take it somewhere else so it is useful um so because you know we're getting on those shows and and they aren't uh, these shows are actually helping to expand people's understanding of the past and we're getting to ask more and more questions and they don't like that kind of stuff because they're not getting the attention uh, they're still getting paid more than we are. That should be some compensation, but I guess it's not. It, it mm -hmm. comes down to ego, I think, and, and pride. So, But I think eventually the truth will out and the, every single day there's new information coming out that's being dug up uh, that is proving that the story is much, much different than what we've been told. Let me ask you, I, I have a specific question for you. Um, you do mention the, uh, the common impact in here, um, you know, causing the flooding. But there are others out there that are saying, you know, maybe it was a solar flare that caused this to happen. So why a comet as opposed to the solar flare? 
Um, oh, my good friend Robert Schock. Yes, yes Robert Schock is on the solar flare idea. There's only yeah. one problem with that theory. Every story around the world that focuses on the flood does not mention anything to do with lights or flares. Hmm. It mentions rocks, burning rocks coming out of the sky, big rocks. So that undermines the whole theory right there. But he is onto something. There could have been a double event happening at the same time that we don't get to hear. But there other, have been other events, I believe 13 he's listed so far, since the flood, right up until historical times when we have been hit by solar flares. So that is true. But related to the actual flood, I haven't come across a single uh, case in 184 surviving flood myths where they talk about lights coming out of the sky and burning things up. They talk about very hard rocks, big rocks. In fact, they talk about some of them that actually came between the sun and the moon. Some it came from the direction of the Pleiades and Orion. So these are verifiable things that people were seeing at the time. And in South America, they even talk about how the llamas looked up um, at the uh, a gap between the sun and the moon. And the uh, farmers said, oh, there's all these big chunks of rock coming this way. Again, that does not point to a solar flare, not in this case anyway. So I think he's partly right. Uh, I just don't think it's it's in this particular situation. Okay, Vanessa, Vanessa, do you have any other questions before I you know wrap up with some more here? Uh, no, go ahead. No, because I asked the ones I wanted to ask. So okay, I just the, wanted to make sure because I've been chat. going for a little while here. So yeah, we, go. we got about we got about eight minutes left already. So. <laughs> Um, there were some down in the chat uh, asking about Atlantis. So I know that all that plays Never into all of it. this as well. Never heard of it. Never heard um, of it. All right. <laughs> well, here's the, again, here's the interesting point about cross-pollination of ideas. So the official story, uh, Plato did not write about it. It was Solon that had the original mm -hmm. story. He right. was a Greek historian. He was hanging out in Egypt with, uh, you know, with the bros at the temple. And they said to him, you know, we've recorded every notable event that's come to our ears for the last 36,000 years. And the, one of them was about the, this great continent, this great civilization that fell apart. Uh, and then the comets finished it off anyway, and it sank in three stages uh, over the course of a considerable amount of time. And uh, I can't, they called it the uh, Island of the Egg uh, or the Island of the Gods, uh, Tanetero. Uh, they didn't actually mention it to be in the Atlantic. They just said it's out there somewhere. Uh, in fact, Sometimes they talk about it being in the West, which is also a metaphor for the other world, which is not the same thing. And sometimes it's in the South, in the Indian Ocean. So the story is a little bit missing. So Solon goes to Greece, tells Plato, Plato writes a fictitious account and a metaphorical account, talking about the story of the civilization as uh, discussed by two uh, historians. So he gets completely taken out of the picture by the historians because he made it all up. No. Myth is a wonderful vehicle for giving you valuable information. You have to understand that. But the Egyptians told Solon this happened in 9600 BC. So put that to the side. Go to the Yucatan and read the Chilam Balam, the sacred book that precedes the Maya. And they talk about the Its. They're called magician priests. The Its that came out of a big landmass in the middle of the Atlantic called Atl, which becomes Atitlan with the Aztecs, and it becomes Atlantis of the Greeks. And they arrived on the coastline of the Yucatan with uh, seven people. One was a woman <laughs> who was married to the, uh, to the guy who was Itzamna. And they lived in Itzamal. You can go and see where he lived. It's a, the biggest pyramid in the Yucatan, and nobody goes there. And um, they said that this event happened exactly 9,600 BC. So the Maya and the Itz are literally saying what the Egyptians have said as well about this sunken land of the gods. So there is a lot of truth to this. And also they've dredged up 
plant uh, beach sand and um, uh, rock bearing uh, oxygen or that were exposed to oxygen in 15,000 BC, which would have been 2000 years before the first major cataclysm, uh, which is in 13,000 BC. So the evidence is being dredged up in the Azores, exactly where they said that the Atlantic was. And a man by the same surname as myself discovered an underwater pyramid just as I was landing in the Azores, which is an incredible coincidence. I wish we were related. And he found the pyramid. <laughs> that pyramid, 180 feet tall, about 120 feet below sea level, uh, about three degrees where I predicted the actual city is in my second book. So he's found the beginning of a massive culture. Uh, it's all beginning to come up uh, out of the woodwork, literally, uh, bit by bit. Wow. That's fascinating. And uh, mm. now... I uh, saw the series on Gaia that you were on in uh, Sardinia, and that architecture there seems very reminiscent of of an Atlantean culture. There's supposed to be giants involved in Sardinia as well. Um, so, and there are people that do theorize that Atlantis was more of a culture rather than one specific place. So, you know, what do you think it was? Do you think it was this worldwide Atlantean culture or do you think it was an actual specific island? I will go back to what we were saying at the beginning. I think that there was a world culture. Uh, they lived in seven, possibly eight different islands or places that behaved like islands. So a society set apart from everybody else, like the ancestors said. Uh, and that there was an Atlantis. Uh, there was also a place called Tepitaka, which is now where the Saudi Arabian Peninsula is. That's where the home of the Anunnaki was. Uh, and this is from the last wisdom keeper in the Cook Islands that gave me the oral tradition. I hope he's still alive because I'm going to give him a copy of the book. So <laughs> he was talking about the Anunnaki and he lives in the Cook Islands in the middle of the Pacific. And he's, he was saying, yeah, they were sailing here until 3000 BC. They were going backwards and forwards and their land was in the middle of what is now the Saudi Arabian Peninsula. The peninsula went up, their island went down. So this culture was everywhere. Uh, but in the end, the remains of the last Atlantean civilization were around the Mediterranean. There were hubs of civilization. Their main center was still in the, what was left of their original homeland, the island of the egg, which is somewhere around where the Azores are now. So we get the two confused. Uh, but if you go to Sardinia, yes, they had the same story of the giants with the red hair. And the story picks up in Scotland. In fact, I just did a documentary on this. It's just been released on my website. Uh, that connects the towers, the unusual towers in the Western Islands of Scotland with the same etymology and the same people that are found in Sardinia. And it's the same group of people called the Tua de Danu. Uh, the word actually comes from, or actually the, the word by which they call them in Sardinia is the Nuraji. It's not a Sardinian word. No one knows where it came from. I traced it to Malta and eventually to Armenia, which is where the Anu used to live. And it means the uh, the, uh, the white-skinned, bearded people of Anu. Uh, so we're back to that story again. Right, uh, yeah. It all comes back have, around. Yeah, we have giant bones there. The alignments of the earliest temples in Sardinia, I can place them quite comfortably about 7,900 BC at the moment. Wow. Let me, uh, we have two questions here from from Nick Moulet, Tom McNicholas. I'm going to combine them together uh, to make one question since, you know, we're kind of back on giants here. So what makes these giants different than, say, uh, somebody who suffers from giantism like uh, Robert Wadlow did? Yeah. It's to do with the genetics of the people that were here before. We can only go by what the stories say. Uh, the fact that there was a, a parallel civilization 
And then when things fell apart, a group of them decided to intermarry with human women. Didn't work out too well. They found a way around that problem. And eventually, when the women were begetting children, they grew uh, 10 to uh, 12, 14 feet tall. And they were covered in red hair. Very, very different to the gigantism that we have. Maybe the gigantism is a kind of uh, a leftover from some listen to breathing. I mean, there are uh, uh, exceptions to the rule. But the one big thing that defines these, these people is the fact that they're also long-headed and their long heads have a larger cranial capacity than their human skull. Now, mothers used to artificially shape the heads of their infants so that they could resemble the gods right. to give them favorable social status. That makes perfect sense. If you're living a mundane existence, you want to marry your daughter to the head chieftain of a clan because she looks like one of the gods. I mean, that makes perfect sense to me. But they look terrible. They look like cone heads. And also, you can reshape the skull, but you can't increase its cubic capacity. Right. And mm -hmm. the yeah. cubic capacity of the true long-headed people, the gods, was 25% larger than the human uh, skull. So there's the proof for you. Well, and to go back real quick, Mike, uh, with what Tom and Nick were talking about, is the gigantism that we have today and the rarity of it, um, it it's my understanding that it's caused by an overactive pituitary gland. And so if the... The giants that we speak of that, that, that Freddie is talking about from back then had a brain capacity or, or a capacity, you know, within their head, 25% larger than what we have now, then their, the, the entire makeup of their brain, the pituitary gland, everything yeah. else inside of it would have, would have been different. Mm -hmm. And it might not have been considered a genetic, it wouldn't have been considered a genetic disorder. Then it would have been how they were. Absolutely. The remnants of that to this day could be that that coming down into, you know, throughout the centuries in the DNA could be considered the disorder. And that's why it is so rare. Absolutely. Yeah. Does I that mean, make this, sense? This, this doesn't just go away. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, 8,000 years after the event, Akhenaten still had the same traits. Uh, right. Physically, of course, you're degenerating. Uh, and then the, the daughters went off to marry other people and they took that bloodline to Britain. We still have their uh, giant's graves there to this very day. Thousands of them and the elongated skulls, which have been taken out of the graves, ground into dust and made to disappear. And I heard that from a friend of mine who gave up being an archaeologist because she was disgusted about what's going on with the complete falsification of evidence. This comes from someone who actually worked in the field. So, yeah, there are remnants of that. I mean... As a kind of a, a joking aside, I mean, I'm Portuguese by birth. I'm supposed to be four foot tall. I'm <laughs> six foot five. I was blonde when I was young, and, and I'm green-eyed for God's sake. I'm and I was and I was born at the base of a mountain where the people of the serpent appeared after the flood, who were the same people that arrived in the Yucatan called the people of the serpent, who were the same people as Viracocha. So it does make me wonder what the hell I've inherited as well and why I write the way I do. But yeah, I mean, but seriously, it is, uh, I would I would suspect that there are remnants of this culture everywhere because it doesn't go away. It's like a virus uh, to bring it back to today's uh, problem. Viruses don't go away. The bubonic plague is still with us uh, in parts of Europe. You don't dig up a mound where there's bubonic plague. It's never going to go away. Uh, H21 is still with us. Uh, SARS is still with us. Uh, so the same thing would happen with genetics with the human body. Just because we bred so much doesn't mean these traits go away. They're still hardwired in some people. And sometimes under the right conditions, they'll just flare up into, you know, like gigantism.
This, yeah. The same thing could be, um, you know, it, it could have been caused by something that was bacterial and people would say, well, that wouldn't be around today causing this. By golly, yes, it would go back to the the um, the the uh, Alaskan Triangle, the episode uh, from Port Chatham. If you watch that one with the hairy man and you go to watch the end of the episode, the archaeologists are digging up bone and rock and everything from thousands of years ago. And the poor gentleman gets a cut. Guess what? <laughs> oh, and he got that the, bacteria. Yeah, yeah he from, got the illness from digging up that old from mammoth. something yeah. that had yeah, from something that had supposedly been been dead and buried for ten thousand years. Exactly. I mean, in England, we have uh, plague victim mounds, and uh, if a dog goes to look for bones, just shoot the dog immediately. I mean, yes. the government says just shoot the dog because you do not want to re release that stuff. Right. The same with the cholera monument, you know, where they have the cholera. Patients, yeah. that's in mm -hmm. Sheffield. So, no, I mean, I, I completely understand. You're, you're absolutely right. Freddie, People let, don't think that way, though. <laughs> <laughs> let me ask you uh, one more question, and uh, we'll wrap it up because we are at our hour mark. Um, so who do you think the Anunnaki really were? Oh, God, if I knew that, I would uh, be a best-selling author all over again. <laughs> We don't know. Uh, I mean, the, 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 again, I go back to the surviving stories and the things that I've pieced together from different people around the world is the fact that, hey, they were all connected with Orion, specifically Orion's belt. And I keep asking people, do you mean this metaphorically or symbolically? I said, no, we mean literally connected with Orion's belt. And I hear this from India and South America and Central America. And uh, it was to do with the fact that at some point they could go backwards and forwards physically uh in the blink of an eye whether it was with uh special ships uh i think they call them the flying shields in the, uh, right, the yeah. american southwest uh, or whether they could just transmute the body from one element to the next like star trek they said no these things were real and sometimes they would take a lucky human with them to their world to observe how to do things properly the idea is that you customize a hunter-gatherer to a, a better way of living they would go back to their tribe and say, I've had a great idea of how we can do this better than killing each other and dragging women by the hair to the cave. Uh, they would be like the precursors of the wisdom keepers. They did it in a very gentle fashion. So I begin to realize there must be some kind of seeding, but that's where the story stops. We didn't know if they came here because their world was dying or the reason why they came here. All we know is the stories are that there was a parallel culture that was much more advanced than we are, and they got along with us just fine. They just tried to avoid us as much as they could because they didn't want to interfere <laughs> with our cultural development, uh, which shows that they certainly had a high level of integrity. All right, fantastic. Freddie, it's always a pleasure having you on the show. Again, this has been wonderful. Uh, everybody, grab Freddie's book, The Missing Lands. I have the link down in the description below. I know Quarantine Ghost has been putting it there in the chat. Uh, wonderful, wonderful man here, Freddie Silva. I personally scrubbed all the books clean for you. No, <laughs> they're COVID-free. Yes, uh, with, uh, with, with fine cognac. There you go. Oh, there you go. <laughs> That's the good stuff. I love online stuff. You can do things you can't do live in lectures. That's right. <laughs> See, he's, see Freddie's nice. I lick mine. And, 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 you know, I would highly recommend looking up his lectures online and watching them. I mean, they're very informative like this and also very entertaining. You had you had one there where you, you kept bringing up photos of sheep, which just had me rolling. So. And you know what? That conspiracy after 20 years is actually coming true. People have been putting that together from different lectures going, actually, if you piece together what you've been saying over 20 years, 
there's a story I'm going, actually, that kind of makes it's, a lot of it's sense. It's true. <laughs> it makes me wonder. Hmm. Yeah, it does. It does. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much. Where can everybody find you? Your website and, and your social media and all that. Invisibletemple.com. Invisibletemple.com. There, there you go. Go check it out. You said you just had a uh, a new video drop on there? Yeah, I figured while I'm in monastic retreat, enforced monastic retreat at home, I might as well get busy and look at all the footage that I've shot over years. And I've just actually made two documentaries. One is about what we're talking about is the companion DVD to the book called The Missing Gods. It goes more into the origin of the gods and things. Uh, shot all around the world. It's beautiful. I love it. Good music, too. And then I had more time on my hands since we're obviously not going anywhere. So I just did uh, a documentary on the uh, uh, Scotland's hidden sacred past, which links together Sardinia and the Anunnaki and the Tuatadanu. And uh, a little speculation in there, which I say so, but it's a, a platform to a new project. So hope you like it. All right. Fantastic. Awesome. Go grab that, everybody, from InvisibleTemple.com. Freddie, again, great to have you. Thank you, everyone. You have a good evening and you be safe. Bye-bye.